Great, good morning. If you would, take your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. there. All right, if you would, we'll go ahead and read this together. Be about close, but not exact. Anyway, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the fifth of these seven letters to these seven churches uh, this morning, this is the letter to the church from the Lord Jesus to the church at Sardis, and I'm going to ask you all, if you would, to go ahead and read it. Uh, we'll begin. i got some other verses that we'll probably read along the line, along the way, so that uh, hopefully everybody will get a chance to read something this morning, but uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning, so whoever gets verse 6 will be the end for right now, then we'll have a word of prayer, so if you would, start, Pastor. All right, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before, the, perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. Therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which are not defiled with garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out the name, his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his name. All right, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning as we look at this uh, letter to the church at Sardis, we pray that you would uh, just help us, help us to be able to uh, pay uh, close attention to you, to your word. Pray that you'd help us to be, again, drawn closer to you and love the Lord Jesus more as we ought. We ask these things in his name and for his sake we pray, amen. Um, Brother John, could you pass these out, please? I didn't get those. All right, while uh, Brother John's passing out those uh, handouts for this particular section here, of course, um, although we've had more Sundays than this, this is the ninth actual study or lesson uh, per the way I've organized it with these handouts. Um, but this is a letter from the Lord Jesus. Again, this is the fifth of the seven to the church at Sardis. Now, you all just, some of you anyway, just read 
this out loud. I don't know if you noticed while you read this, though, there's a significant difference in this letter compared to the uh, four previous ones. Remember, uh, we've seen several differences. There's a sevenfold outline that's common to these letters, but uh, there are several that have some significant departures, differences from that. You remember that the uh, church at Smyrna, the second of these letters, there was not a word of condemnation from the Lord Jesus to that particular church. All right, then also remember when we got to the fourth letter last time, the uh, letter to the church at Thyatira, remember in that one, there was a change, <coughs> excuse me, in the, uh, the last section, which we, we call in our outline a challenge to hear. Uh, there was a, a switch up from uh, the first three letters had the, the call to hear, right? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Then that followed with a promise to the overcomer. Last uh, week, the letter to the church at Thyatira, those were switched up, if you remember, all right? The promise, or pardon me, I had that backwards, all right? Uh, last week, it changed to uh, the promise first, and then the uh, one that has the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now I can't remember if I had it mixed up or not, but anyway, uh, there was a change in that. And then the rest, this letter today and then the, the other two that follow this, they follow that particular pattern. But did anybody notice anything of that sevenfold outline that was missing in this particular letter? Remember that outline is you have, you have of course, uh, the church addressed. You have Christ described. Then you have... A uh, words of commendation to the church as the Lord recognizes their deeds and so on. Then you have uh, a condemnation delivered. You have correction that's given. And then you have, and I may have forgot one there, you have the challenge uh, consequences and then you have the challenge to hear. All right, anybody notice what was different about this particular church here? There is no direct word of commendation from the Lord to this church. That should get our attention when we think about that, all right? Uh, I mean, uh, even in the previous two letters, as we read those, we think, okay, those churches had some, some needs. They had some things that needed to be addressed from the Lord. But nonetheless, there were words, good words, that the Lord spoke of those churches as well as He recognized, uh, you know, uh, their, their service for Him. Uh, and so on. And remember that church at Thyatira, the one thing that stands out about it in the commendation from the Lord was he, he commended that church for their love. None of the other churches are commended for their love. That's, a, again, an interesting uh, thing when you think about that. But you come to this letter here under the angel of the church in Sardis, right? And then Christ is described, then he goes right into the idea of telling them what's wrong. And so uh, we're going to look at that as we go through this. So no one enjoys receiving rebuke. I mean, I don't know of anybody that just loves to get rebuked and, you know, get uh, their toes stepped on, so to speak, and their feelings hurt and all this kind of thing. But the thing is, there's none of us that doesn't need it, at least from time to time. Some perhaps more than others, 
but there's none that are without need of it. The telling thing, if you want to say, is how we respond to that rebuke. And I was thinking, you know, the Sunday evening lessons um, with the uh, uh, looking at the life of Peter and, and the education of a disciple, lessons, you know, for a disciple. Peter, on more than one occasion, was rebuked. And uh, in, in some cases, very publicly, you know, in front of others and so on. But the thing that stands out about Peter is he was, if you want to say man enough, but also wise enough to allow the Lord to work in his heart, and he heeded those. And obviously that's, that's something that we all need to uh, emulate in that as well. But the Lord, think about this, when the Lord rebukes, he's no less loving in his rebuke than he is when he speaks well of us. He loves just the same. In fact, it's not contained in this particular letter, but the letter, two letters from now, the letter to the church at Laodicea, the Lord even mentions, those whom I love, I rebuke. So think about that. When the Lord rebukes, it's, it's done in love, and it's, it's about love, all right? If, if the Lord is taking, if, if I can word it this way, taking time to correct and to rebuke, that's a good thing. That means he's interested, he's at work, and he's loving. If he's not doing that, that's when we should really be concerned, all right? And so uh, this, is, this is, again, this is a... Uh, in a way, a harsh-sounding letter from the Lord, but it's, it's given in love, all right? So just consider briefly some things here. The church addressed, again, like most of these uh, letters to these churches, as far as the church itself and so on, we don't know really anything about this church outside of what's contained here as far as in the Bible, right? This, this church isn't mentioned in the book of Acts like... Uh, some of the others, and so on. Uh, but only what's here is what we know. Now, there are some other uh, extra-biblical writings and so on that, that have some information. But this city in which this church uh, existed was much like you know, the others uh, in this same context here. It was a very wicked city, full of idolatry, and so on. This city was really a... Uh, 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 you want to say a very important city, uh, like some of the others in in their day in that Rome in the Roman Empire in which it existed. Then it was uh, an important textile manufacturing city. They had uh, cloth dyeing there. It was uh, well known for its jewelry trading. In fact, it was once referred to as the Queen of Asia. Uh, the city was situated on an elevated position. Uh, that made it almost impossible to be attacked, you know, by an enemy invasion. In fact, uh, I, I read uh, some accounts of how this city was invaded in uh, its history, and just trying to make that quick, I mean, one of the times that this was, uh, this happens twice that I know of in, in, in uh, its history, but once was because they had such an attitude that no one could ever invade us because of where they were situated that basically the guards were asleep and uh, left things unattended and uh, the others were able to invade in that regard. 
on another occasion, bribery took place and so on. But nonetheless, you can see the idea of, a, of an apathy that was there. All right? And so that, that kind of, in some ways, relates to what the Lord says about this church, I believe, here. And so as you um, uh, proceed in here, you see the Christ described. So still in verse 1 here, talking about this church, and then, of course, what the Lord Jesus is writing to it. Again, in every one of these letters, Jesus addresses the church, but then he he says something about himself in reference to this. And they all have to do with the context of what he's writing about that church. But here he says, under the angel of the church, uh, which is uh, the church in Sardis, write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. All right, so... Christ is talking here to the church, and he describes himself as the possessor of the seven spirits of God and the possessor of the seven stars. Now, this is the second time uh, in the book of Revelation that we've seen a phrase concerning the seven spirits of God, all right? Uh, and, and again, I'm just going to be brief on this right now. We may touch up to, on this a little more in depth later because there's other references in Revelation. Um, but uh, it seems to be a unique description of the Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, and, and several connections, if you want to say, with that. Now, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, I'm not going to go there for time's sake yet uh, here, but in verse 2 particularly, but in that context, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, it's a messianic prophecy, of course, and uh, it, it speaks there of, it gives, you could say, a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit, all right, uh, in that verse. And again, this, this seems to be in that same connection. Remember, too, the number seven in the book of Revelation is prominent, all right, and so obviously it, it seems as well to be signifying that this idea of the sevenfold Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit in His completeness, all right? All of Him. Now, we could, we could spend the rest of the, the time this morning just talking about this, obviously, but I'm trying to not do that. But think about this, all right? In fact, just who, I'm, I'm not sure who would be next in reading, but could somebody go to John chapter 3, verse 34, and then also, eh, we'll just leave it at that for right now. John, John chapter uh, 3, verse 34. This is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. All right, so you have that, Debbie? For he whom God has sent speaking the words of God, for God is not the Spirit by measure unto him. All right. In fact, later on in the same context there, John mentions about uh, that God the Father had conveyed to him that the one to whom he saw the Spirit descending upon and staying, all right, that that was the Christ, that was the Messiah, all right. Uh, but what John says there in that particular uh, verse that was read is, he that hath the Spirit without measure, all right, 
The idea is the Lord Jesus obviously was full of the Holy Spirit as a man here on the earth. And as has been said numerous times, all right, he came to do the will of the Father and he did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he did that as a man, all right? I mean, as God, he is God. He, you know, he's equal with God the Father, God the Spirit. But as a man, he had the unmeasured fullness of the Holy Spirit. The reason being because as a man, he was fully, completely yielded to him, right? Obviously, everybody has heard of the term being filled with the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, and really in the New Testament, that relates to the believer and the, uh, the relationship of our fullness is based upon the relationship of our yieldedness to Him. So as we are yielded to Him, we are filled with Him, or the idea is controlled by Him. What we do is done in His power, all right? And, and the idea is here is, all right, the Lord Jesus is saying to this church that He is the one that fully possesses and is possessed by fully the Holy Spirit, all right? And then He says He's the possessor of these stars, all right, now, this is no secret at this point because we've already seen this in Revelation, but what are the stars that he holds in his right hand, if you remember? The angels of the churches, or literally the messengers of the churches, we, we would contend that they're the pastors of these churches. And think of this, all right, through how does the Lord direct his churches? All right, he directs his churches, and I'll just answer it myself right here. He directs his churches through his word, but through his Holy Spirit and through the leadership that he delegates in those churches, all right, through the pastors, all right? So you have in this scenario here, right, the Lord Jesus as the one who is the head of his churches, who is the one who, because of him being fully the possessor of the Holy Spirit and the possessor of the stars, he's the one that is in control, giving direction to his churches. And the Holy Spirit, if you think about this, all right, in throughout the New Testament as well, the opposite, okay, of the Spirit is flesh, all right? So really, in the sense here, if an individual believer, or if a church is not operating in, under, I should say, the control of the Holy Spirit, then they are operating how? They're operating in the power of the flesh, all right? The Holy Spirit, uh, I mean, there's, there's numerous things that the Holy Spirit does in a believer's life, but there's a direct significance of the Holy Spirit and the Power, now we like that word, but literally the idea of the enabling to do what God would have us to do. The, the ability to do what God's called us to do, what God gifts us to do, what God has for us to do. The, the enabling, the way we can do that is through the Holy Spirit. Dependence on Him. Submission to Him. All right? It's not in our power uh, and so on. All right? it, it's similar to, I mean, in, in the same picture, this picture of a sevenfold spirit, the sevenfold spirit. Uh, there's a passage in the book of Zechariah, 
there, a vision that Zechariah saw in chapters 3 and then 4 uh, about the candlestick and the unending supply of, of oil and so on. But then in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Zechariah is where that statement that's often quoted where the Lord tells Zechariah, which all of that is given in, by the way, it fits the idea, it's given in the context of a, a message that Zechariah is to give to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the, the, the civil and spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel at the time, to rebuild the temple. All right, that, But that's that in verse 6, that is where that statement is, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, all right? It's in that, that context. And, and that has to do, again, all of this fits together with, with even really what the Lord Jesus is telling this church here in, uh, in Sardis, all right? So um, he's the one that's the possessor of the seven spirits of God, the possessor of the seven stars, all right? They're in his control, and think about that, not only in his control and direction, but in his protection. In John chapter 10, remember that, that uh, statement that's used there about believers, right? Uh, begins uh, in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, right? Then it goes on to talk about how they are in his hand and in the Father's hand. I mean, so... There's that idea of protection involved in this idea of being in Christ's hand as well as his direction and so on. Uh, a lot of things uh, that, are, that are neat there, right? So let, let, me, let me move on though, all right? But now you, you see the third idea, the commendation deserved. And as we've already mentioned, there's no direct commendation given to this church. Now, verse 4 does say, I mean, the Lord does say, there's a few names, all right, in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, all right? So, in other words, he, he's kind of saying, not everybody has, has you know, uh, been unfaithful, but he is saying that really he gets right to the point of telling what's wrong with this church, and I, I've got to move on in the outline to get to that, all right? So, number four, Roman numeral number four, the condemnation Delivered, and I guess I probably should try to keep up with it on that as well. But the condemnation delivered. Uh, I mean, think about this. What a stinging rebuke to receive from the Lord Jesus. All right, He says here in verse 1 uh, that He's the one that hath uh, the seven spirits of God, the, the sevenfold spirit of God, the spirit of God in His fullness. He's the one that has the seven stars now, here it doesn't say in his right hand, but in previously in Revelation, that's where we're told that those stars are, right, in his hand. And he says, I know thy works, which is a general statement, all right? I know what's going on, all right? And he says uh, that thou, and this is what he's saying that he knows about them, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. I mean, that's, I mean, when you read that, that's like, wow, to, to, for the Lord to say that and to hear that. I mean, that would, that would have to be a, a, an attention-getting uh, statement to hear from the Lord Jesus. You have this name that you're alive, but you're really dead. 
I mean, and this is just one of the examples that you see in these letters of the Lord saying something to the effect that, you know, uh, you know, people see this and think this, but this is what I see. And remember to the church at Smyrna, that second letter we saw several uh, weeks back, uh, the Lord said, you know, basically, apparently from the outward visible circumstances, they were small, you know, inept, uh, poor, and so on. But what did the Lord say of them? He said, but you're rich. All right, I mean, so the point being is what men see is very often not what the Lord sees. Not necessarily always, but very often it's not. And the Lord is the one that really knows and, of course, really sees. And so this condemnation delivered, let's, let's talk about this for a bit. You see the idea of the perception, all right, what others perceive. Maybe it's even what they perceived, but what others perceived at least. You have a name, all right, you're living. But apparently, you know, the church thought well enough of itself, and likely other contemporary churches of that day thought Sardis was doing a good job, but the Lord knew differently. He saw differently. And there's a quote here. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good quote. The letter to the angel of the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, 1 through 6, suggests that the early Christian community there was imbued with the same spirit as the city, resting on its past reputation and without any present achievement and failing as the city had twice failed to learn from its past and be vigilant. The symbol of white garments was rich in meaning in a city noted for its luxury clothing trade. The faithful few who are vigilant shall be arrayed to share in the triumphal coming of their Lord. Now that quote talks about some of the future things that we'll get to here in this letter. But the idea, uh, again, that they, they were kind of just in, in a state of apathy and, and kind of living in the past, so to speak. All right, And obviously that's nothing that, uh, uh, that anyone can, can and should do. And we've already mentioned this, but again, the opposite of spirit is flesh. Those are directly compared often in the New Testament. And so if a Christian or if a church is not living in the Spirit, they are obviously living in the flesh. And it's very possible to do things in serving the Lord and so on, but doing them in the flesh, in a fleshly and, and when you say that, again, sometimes I think with that phrase, the flesh, we, we get some wrong connotations. It, it doesn't necessarily mean like immoral, but the idea of our power. It, it, we're resting on our own abilities. We're, we're relying on what we can do and not relying on what the Lord can do. There's a big difference in those two. Does the Lord use human ability, and so on? Yes. But at the same time, the Lord can neglect that human ability if it's not relying on Him. And you, know, you think of their, <coughs> well, that, that statement that uh, I already referred to in Zechariah, where you know, the Israelites had been given a commandment from the Lord, and even from Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, well before the, the time of Zechariah, but to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And they, they started out, and then they got into a state of apathy. 
And Haggai talks about how they were worried more about their own things, right? And their own sealed houses and so on, while the Lord's house laid in waste. And they had started some work, but they got distracted with other things. And they got, you know, off track. And then when, when Zechariah comes along, Haggai starts it. Zechariah was, was just right about the time of Haggai. But the, the Lord used those two prophets to, uh, to motivate the people of Israel to get back to what they were supposed to be doing there. And in that context is that statement. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how they were going to accomplish what was needed to be done. They had to rely on the Lord and on His Spirit instead of just looking at the human elements and so on involved. I mean, when God calls His people to do something, He provides the way to do it. He gives grace. Now again, what's grace? It's God's help, right? To those that don't deserve it, it's unmerited. We don't deserve it, but it's what God can do for us is the idea. It's Him working, us relying on His working, taking Him at His word, trusting Him, operating in obedience to Him, relying on His Holy Spirit because we don't have the ability to do it, but trusting that He will do it because He said. I mean, all of that is wrapped up into, the, into this whole idea of, of the Lord's Spirit being the one that does this. And He uses His people. We are to be used of the Lord. I mean, that's how God's work gets done on, in this world right now, is through the Lord's people, but it's only as we rely on Him that it gets done. It's, we can't do it in our own place. And there's a lot, of, a lot of Christians probably, a lot of churches probably, that are doing things, but it's basically just like a a car being stuck and just sitting there giving all the gas it can get and, and just spinning the tires, not going anywhere. Nothing is really for eternal value being accomplished because it's all done in the flesh. And that's a tragedy when you think about it. All right, and that's really what the Lord is addressing to this church, all right? Everybody, you know, I say everybody... Others had looked at them, and perhaps they thought about themselves. Oh, you know, hey, this is, this is good. We're, we're doing things. And, but the Lord said, it's nothing. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. I mean, that's, that's a pretty strong way of, of putting that. I, I don't know how you would say it any stronger. And, but you're dead, right? I mean, again, there's many churches today that claim to be alive, and many that may appear that way. But, and likely only the Lord Jesus, the living head of the churches, knows the reality of these. But to, to one degree or another, the correction given to Sardis is needed by all. I mean, think about that. Every, the human tendency, you know, it's just like that, uh, that idea of entropy. I mean, things tend toward, you know, decay. They tend toward, you know, energy dies off, so to speak. And so all all Christians, at some time or another, to one degree or another, need revived. All churches need revival. Now, by that, I'm not saying need to schedule a week of meetings and, and so on. That's not necessarily revival, right? But revival is a heart matter. 
But we all need that. We need to be stirred up and remotivated, if you want to say, to be surrendered to the Lord, trust Him as we ought. I mean, because the tendency is, if we're not careful, we, we tend to drift from that. That's just normal. That's natural. That's just the way human nature is. And so that's why we need correction uh, and so on. All right. And then he says the perception, the reality, we've, we've already talked about, it, but you're dead. All right. Dead religion. Again, uh, two things there. Does this mean spiritual death in that these ones are yet unsaved? I mean, that, that's a possibility. I don't necessarily believe that's what the thing is here. Does this mean they are simply going through the motions of doing church? Do they need revival? Are they uh, simply apathetic, indifferent, lacking fire and zeal? I guess you could, could uh, go either way with that. And he talks about um, in verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God imperfect works. The idea of this, though, is, is not complete. They haven't finished. And, uh, I mean, I guess there's a couple ways to look at that when you think about the work that God has given His people. In one way, it will never be finished, right, until the Lord returns. But then in another way, it's often the case that, that you know, people start things and don't finish them, don't complete them. They, well, we've done enough, or, you know, whatever. And so we, we have to be careful of all those things and not clock out before uh, the time, if you want to say. Um, and so let me, let me move on here. The correction needed, Roman numeral number five, the, the correction needed. And this is, this is a longer list, if you want to say, of what the Lord says, how to, you know, what they need to do uh, to correct this, a longer list than what we've seen. Uh, in, in the mo- for the most part on these. Uh, he says, be watchful. Notice again in verse 2, uh, after he says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before me. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. So that again, that's kind of a long, longer list of what the Lord's saying. Okay, this is what you need to do. Uh, remember, in Ephesus, He simply said, "Remember, uh, repent, and redo. Uh, remember where you've fallen. Um, repent, and then redo. Do those first works." All right, um, and and so on. Here, He's He's gives a few other statements involved in this. So let's, let's talk about these real quick here. He says, be watchful. This is literally the idea of wake up. Um, you remember when, uh, in, in, as the Lord Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and He took Peter, James, and John with them, and He told them to do what? To watch and pray. Now, that particular idea of watch, in a way, yes, it involves you know, being on watch, but it's the idea of stay awake. Pay attention, all right? And uh, this is a wake-up call. And, and there, it's interesting that I included some verses there. In fact, um, we got a couple more that can read, I guess. Um, uh, would somebody, Andy, would you get Romans 13, 11? And then, um, if you're able, Katie, could you read 1 Corinthians 16, 13? 
You can read it when you get it, yeah. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we All right, watch in that verse, but same ideas. There's, there's, and there's some other statements in the New Testament to this effect, but the idea that we need to be, we need to be awake and alert. And again, it's just not talking about literally keeping yourself physically awake, but it's, a, it's a, an alertness. I mean, how many times, not using that word alone, but like in Ephesians 5, just itself, for instance, were to be circumspect. Anybody remember the idea of that word? I mean, you think of a circumference, right? The idea is we're to, we're to be aware of everything around us. I mean, because it's a, we, we live in a spiritually dangerous environment. So we need to be spiritually alert and awake is the idea. Um, this world is not a friend of God. It's the enemy of God. And, but we're, it, it's like, you know, uh, like uh, in a military sense or something like a recon unit being put in enemy territory. I mean, they have to be extremely watchful and careful, observing everything and constantly being alert to everything that's around them. I mean, it's a matter of life and death. And the same thing really in a spiritual sense, is true for God's people here in this earth. And numerous times we have that conveyed to us in the New Testament, all right? And, and then, but we're to be watchful and strengthen, he says here um, in verse 2. Uh, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. In other words, it's like, okay, there's a few things that haven't completely died off, you need, to, you need to be very careful. Don't let those, don't let those die. Let's, let's keep this going, all right? Is the idea, strengthen the things which are, remain and are ready to die. Strengthen, establish, fix firmly, all right? Give special attention to, to zeal, to what's left so it's not lost, all right? And then remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, there in verse 3. Um, be reminded of the importance of the task, all right? Remember uh, what, we've, what we've received, what we've been given. And uh, again, that what we've heard. Think about that. It ties in with faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Um, and so uh, remember those things. And then hold fast, which is the idea to keep, to observe, pay attention to, be obedient to the word of God, um, and then repent, is what he says at the end of that in verse 3. Repentance is necessary, not just for salvation. Repentance is, a, is an ongoing need in the Christian life. That's, that should be descriptive of our response to God whenever there's rebuke, correction given. Just, I mean, I've heard it described this way. Uh, you know, repentance for a person, all right, begins at salvation, all right? There's an initial response to God and repentance, but then that is a continual attitude that should be ongoing throughout the Christian life. Is, you know, it doesn't leave. Just like faith, all right? Faith is 
part of what God does for a person. We can't believe God on our own. Yes, we're commanded to respond to Him in faith, but faith in, is a gift of God, all right? It's part of the whole thing that God gives in salvation. And so, uh, and that's something that should begin at salvation, but should be ongoing throughout our Christian lives as well, all right? Anyway, um, let me press on here. Notice if we talk then about the consequence if unheeded. There's a couple quotes there that are pretty uh, worth reading. Uh, your time there, but the consequence, if unheeded, if those in this church did not heed the correction offered, they would be caught off guard or taken by surprise when the Lord returned. Now, possibly referring to His coming to this church in judgment, but possibly referring to the Lord's return for His saints, the rapture, because again, keep in mind two things about this. Um, one is the whole attitude of the New Testament concerning the rapture, and this was true in the days of the first century as the New Testament was being written, and still is to be true today, is that the Lord could return at any moment. That idea of imminency. I mean, Paul, when he wrote of the rapture, he wrote as if he was expecting it in his life. I mean... That, that passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 that gives a description of what, uh, much of what will happen in the rapture, Paul says in that, he talks about how those that are uh, dead in Christ shall rise, but he says, then we which are alive and remain. Paul anticipated that happening in his day. But, that's, but my point being, that's the whole attitude that's conveyed in the New Testament from that time and is ongoing. That's the attitude that we are to live with. That's why we're to be watchful. Um, Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 14. Um, I hate when that happens. Now I can't, I can need a jump start on it here. Uh, da, 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 da. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. All right, we're live that way. While we are what? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be living in such a way and looking for His return. I mean, that, that is the whole attitude of the entire New Testament. He could come back any moment. And I, you know, again, I think that's really what he's conveying to this church here is, all right, you're, you're to do what? You're to uh, be watchful. You're to strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. In other words, let me, let me put it this way. I believe it's very possible. All right, everybody in this room has heard about these truths, right? But it's very possible for even us in this room to be caught off guard when the rapture happens. Very possible. In fact, 
do that. Turn there. I'm not going to just have one person read it. Turn back to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 28. And by the way, the book, the epistle of 1 John, is written to believers. It's written to those professing Christ. And, and there's, you know, one of the strong reasons it's written is to give assurance and to uh, help those, right? Um, but it also, there's, there's a number of other little statements throughout the, the, the book, but it's written to believers, all right? So that, that's my point. But notice verse 28, and now little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Think about that statement for a second. It's not talking about we may have confidence and not be ashamed in the sense that you know when you know, that we might be left behind or something like that. But it's talking about when we face him, all right, when he appears and we are before him. It is very possible for Christians I mean, the Bible talks about a judgment seat of Christ, which is not a matter of being judged as, you know, for salvation. That has taken place. All right, this is for all that will be at the judgment seat of Christ are saved people. But it's very possible when we stand before Him that we can be confident. Verse says that. It also says it's very possible we could be ashamed before him. And again, that's not talking about losing your salvation. That's not talking about, you know, not uh, like him casting you aside, so to speak. But it's being ashamed before him because we've not been doing what we're supposed to. We've been caught off guard. We haven't been watchful. All right? So that's what he's saying. Abide in him. Dwell in him. Remain in him and be living in that way. So that when he appears, it'll be a happy occasion and not one that leaves us with some regret. Now, perhaps it's fair to say everybody regrets some things, okay? But the judgment seat of Christ, I mean, Paul, think about this. In, in uh, first, 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ, it says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that... Uh, everyone may receive the things done in his body. And then in verse 11, and I may, I may have left out a little part of that verse, but in verse 11 he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I believe what he's talking about there, because right in that context, the terror of the Lord that Paul's talking about is the fear of standing before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Because it's a serious thing. It's a sobering, it should be a sobering thing to every one of us. And think about that, if Paul the Apostle, I mean, now, now he's just a man, okay? He's, he's no superhuman, so, no super Christian, so to speak. But 
fair to say, it seems, from what we see about Paul in the New Testament, he was a faithful man and served Christ with everything, right, it seems. Um, but if Paul had the attitude that it was fearful for him to stand before the Lord Jesus and be examined, I mean, how much should it be for us? And again, it's not a matter of, oh, I hope I'm saved. And that, that's, not the whole, that's not the point at all. If you're not saved, you won't even be there, okay? I mean, and you've got a far different kind of judgment to look forward to. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. But those that are there are saved people, but the point is the response that we'll have can be twofold. Either it'll be a joyous thing and we'll have confidence or we'll be ashamed. According to 1 John chapter 2, the same writer that's writing the words in Revelation. Let me press on and we've got to close. All right, but so ashamed or confident. And then this, this is a way, and then deceived or doomed. All right, let me just, you can later read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. But for the unsaved who have rejected the Lord Jesus now, they will face a horrible future after the rapture. And uh, they will be deceived. Uh, let, me, let me just word it this way and, and as concise, but yet clear as I can. All right, I believe that passage in 2 Thessalonians is teaching if a person willfully rejects Christ in this time, they won't have any opportunity. They, they will, after the rapture, they will be deceived by the Antichrist. Which, if you think about that, that conveys that the Antichrist is going to be a lot different than what we probably typically think about him. If he's able to deceive people that have had a spiritual background, I mean, it's not like he's going to appear as some demonic creature and be all, you know, wicked seeming in that. Now, he will have a turn, okay, a change of things in the, in the tribulation time, in the middle part of the tribulation, but he's going to come on the scene and people are going to think he's the Messiah. He's, the whole idea of Antichrist is he's there instead of Christ, in Christ's place, so to speak. All right, but anyway, serious, serious warning. And we got, we got to, all right, so the, the, the last two verses just give this challenge, right? He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's going to be true of every saved person, all right? You're going to have a robe of white. You're going to be, uh, your, your name will be as permanent in the book of life, and you'll be confessed before the Father, and before His angels, according to what Christ says. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. we got to close there, but let's just be warned, all right? This is, this is serious business. Let's not, let's not live in the flesh. And again, by that, I'm not talking about just, you know, like immoral thing. but let's don't be controlled by our flesh. Don't be content to serve in our flesh. Let's be living in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word. Help us uh, just to be what we ought to be for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.